George Clinton responded to Hamilton's declaration of war on two levels. The governor almost certainly authored seven essays signed Cato that set forth reasoned objections to the Constitution. Cato wanted a stronger Congress, more members in the House of Representatives, and a weak president restricted to one term. Then a pair of newspaper articles styled Inspector showed just how vicious the calumny against Hamilton would be. Hamilton was portrayed as the uppity Tom S. T. Tom Shit, and introduced as a musty, the offspring of a white person and a quadroon. This was the first time that Hamilton's opponents tried to denigrate him with charges of mixed racial ancestry. Tom Shit is mocked for his Creolian writing. In a soliloquy, Tom, a conceited upstart and British lackey, says, My dear masters, I am indeed leading a very hard life in your service. Consider the great sacrifices I have made for you. By birth a subject of his Danish majesty, I quitted my native soil in the torrid zone and called myself a North American for your sakes. Tom is accused of having sent his Phocian essays, defending persecuted Tories, straight from the king's printer in England. After castigating Hamilton as a treacherous foreigner, the author refers to Washington as Hamilton's immaculate daddy, a snide reference to Hamilton's illegitimacy. Thus began the baseless mythology which persists to this day that Hamilton was Washington's natural child. Inspector seemed to know all about Hamilton's notorious June 18th speech at the convention, but the secret nature of the deliberations made it impossible to print anything directly. So, in the next installment, he concocted an allegory in which a Mrs. Columbia asks Tom Shit how best to run her plantation. Tom replies that the plantation superintendent should be installed for life instead of for four-year terms. The author concludes, Such strides Tom had already made in emerging from obscurity that he conceived nothing was beyond the reach of his good fortune. Evidently, Clintonians thought the time had come to chop Hamilton down to size by jeering at his foreign birth, his supposed racial identity, his illegitimacy, and his putative links to the British crown, attacks that set a pattern for the rest of Hamilton's career. Since critics found it hard to defeat him on intellectual grounds, they stooped to personal attacks. In late September, Hamilton jotted down some unpublished reflections on the Constitution. He was guardedly hopeful that it would be ratified as men of property closed ranks to stop the depredations which the democratic spirit is apt to make on property. He thought it would also be supported by creditors eager to see government debt repaid. On the other hand, it would be resisted by state politicians who feared a decrease in their power and citizens who dreaded new taxes. If the Constitution was not ratified, Hamilton expected a dismemberment of the Union and monarchies in different portions of it, or else several Republican confederacies. If civil war came, he foresaw a possible reversion to colonial status. A reunion with Great Britain from universal disgust at a state of commotion is not impossible, though not much to be feared. Presumably Hamilton meant that it was not likely. The most plausible shape of such a business would be the establishment of a son of the present British monarchy in the supreme government of this country with a family compact. Impelled by such fears, Hamilton flung himself into defending the Constitution. 
Throughout his career, he operated in the realm of the possible, taking the world as it was, not as he wished it to be, and he often inveighed against a dogmatic insistence upon perfection. Being a lawyer may have eased his transition from arch-skeptic to supreme admirer of the Constitution, for he had the attorney's ability to make the best case for an imperfect client. He was not alone in making this transition. All the delegates at Philadelphia had adopted the final document in a spirit of compromise. They approached it as a collective work and championed it as the best available solution. What Jefferson said of George Washington could easily have applied to Hamilton. He has often declared to me that he considered our new Constitution as an experiment on the practicability of republic government, and that he was determined the experiment should have a fair trial and would lose the last drop of his blood in support of it. I do believe that General Washington had not a firm confidence in the durability of our government. Hamilton was no less hopeful, no less committed, and certainly no less skeptical. By early October 1787, Hamilton conceived an ambitious writing project to help elect Federalist delegates to the New York Ratifying Convention. A comprehensive explication of the entire document, written by New Yorkers for a New York audience, in early October 1787, James Kent encountered Hamilton at a dinner party at the Schuyler Mansion in Albany, where Hamilton was attending the fall session of the state Supreme Court. Philip Schuyler expatiated on the need for a national revenue system, while Hamilton listened quietly. Mr. Hamilton appeared to be careless and desultory in his remarks, Kent recalled, and it occurred to me afterwards that he was deeply meditating the plan of the immortal work of the Federalist. Tradition claims that Hamilton wrote the first installment of the masterpiece known as the Federalist Papers in the cabin of a Hudson River sloop as he and Eliza returned to New York from Albany. Eliza recalled going upriver, not down, and said Hamilton laid out the contours of the project as they sailed. My beloved husband wrote the outline of his papers in the Federalist on board of one of the North River sloops while on his way to Albany, a journey which in those days usually occupied a week. Public business so filled up his time that he was compelled to do much of his studying and writing while traveling. Whether he was sailing downriver or upriver, it is pleasant to picture Hamilton scratching out his plan as the tall, single-masted schooner slipped past the Hudson Highlands and the Palisades. This first essay appeared in the Independent Journal on October 27, 1787. Hamilton supervised the entire Federalist project. He dreamed up the idea, enlisted the participants, wrote the overwhelming bulk of the essays, and oversaw the publication. For his first collaborator, he recruited John Jay, a tall, thin, balding man with a pale, melancholy face and a wary look in his deep-set gray eyes. Jay always looked austere, almost gaunt in paintings, though he could show delightful flashes of wit. Descended from Huguenots, the son of a wealthy merchant, Jay had been the major draftsman of the New York State Constitution. Along with Franklin and Adams, he had negotiated the treaty that ended the Revolution and was a longtime Secretary of Foreign Affairs under the Articles of Confederation. With his first-rate mind and unquestioned integrity, he was a superb choice to collaborate on the project. Hamilton and Jay invited in three other authors. Madison wrote, the undertaking was proposed by Alexander Hamilton to James Madison with a request to join him and Mr. Jay in carrying it into effect. 
William Dewar was also included in the original plan and wrote two or more papers, which, though intelligent and sprightly, were not continued, nor did they make a part of the printed collection. Hamilton courted Governor Morris, who said he was warmly pressed by Hamilton to assist in writing The Federalist, but was too harried by business to consent. That Hamilton approached Morris and Madison shows that he wanted the anonymous essays to profit from detailed knowledge of the convention's inner workings. He always believed that the framers' intentions were important, though not decisive. He said the Constitution must speak for itself. Yet, to candid minds, the contemporary explanations of it by men who had had a perfect opportunity of knowing the views of its framers must operate as a weighty collateral reason for believing the construction agreeing with this explanation to be right, rather than the opposite one. Each author was assigned an area corresponding to his expertise. Jay naturally handled foreign relations. Madison, versed in the history of republics and confederacies, covered much of that ground. As author of the Virginia Plan, he also undertook to explain the general anatomy of the new government. Hamilton took those branches of government most congenial to him, the executive, the judiciary, and some sections on the Senate. Previewing things to come, he also covered military matters and taxation. The Federalist essays first appeared in newspapers. The authors had to camouflage their identities behind a pseudonym, lest they be accused of betraying the confidentiality of the convention. At first, Hamilton planned to publish the pieces under the rubric of a citizen of New York, but changed it when James Madison of Virginia was recruited to the project. He then selected the pen name Publius, which he had first used in 1778 when he berated Samuel Chase for wartime profiteering. It was an apposite choice. Publius Valerius had toppled the last Roman king and set up the republican foundations of government. Hamilton rushed a copy to Mount Vernon without identifying himself as its author. For the remaining numbers of Publius, Washington responded, I shall acknowledge yourself obliged, as I am persuaded the subject will be well handled by the author. Jay wrote the next four numbers, then had to drop out because of a severe bout of rheumatism. In the final tally, the Federalist papers ran to eighty-five essays, with fifty-one attributed to Hamilton, twenty-nine to Madison, and only five to Jay. Since Hamilton had not reckoned on Jay's illness and had expected to include Morris and Dewar, he could never have anticipated that he and Madison would write so much in seven months, some one hundred and seventy-five thousand words in all, or that the Federalist would essentially settle down to a two-man enterprise. Thanks to the cooperation of Hamilton and Madison, New York emerged as the main arena of intellectual combat over the new plan of government. The project's magnitude mushroomed tremendously from its origins, as indicated by Archibald MacLean, the Hanover Square printer who published the bound version and felt beleaguered by the project. When I engaged to do the work, he groused to Robert Troop, it was to consist of twenty numbers, or at the most twenty-five. Instead of one projected volume of two hundred pages, McLean complained, the Federalist ended up running to two volumes of about six hundred pages. To worsen matters, the luckless printer was stuck with several hundred unsold copies and grumbled that he didn't clear five pounds on the whole deal. For Archibald McLean, the Federalist papers were a dreadful flop, an unfortunate publishing venture best forgotten. To safeguard his anonymity, Hamilton sent the early essays to the newspapers via Robert Troop. 
If Hamilton was out of town, he sometimes sent them to Eliza, who may have then relayed them along to Troop. Later, as it became an open secret in New York political circles that Hamilton was the chief author, newspaper publisher Samuel Loudon went straight to Hamilton's office for fresh copy. Many people knew that Hamilton, Madison, and Jay were the authors, but the trio proclaimed their authorship to only a chosen few, and then mostly after the first bound volume was published in March 1788. Madison furnished Jefferson with the relevant names in code, while Hamilton sent Washington the book version and observed, I presume you have understood that the writers are chiefly Mr. Madison and myself, with some aid from Mr. J. More sensitive was the question of who wrote what. Hamilton and Madison forged a pact that they would reveal this only by mutual agreement, initiating two centuries of scholarly disputation over the authorship of approximately fifteen of the essays. True to their pledge, Hamilton and Madison remained coy on the subject. The Federalist has been extolled as both a literary and political masterpiece. Theodore Roosevelt commented that it is on the whole the greatest book dealing with practical politics. Its achievement is the more astonishing for having been written under such fierce deadline pressure. The first of the staggered series of ratifying conventions was scheduled to start in late November, and this allowed Hamilton and Madison little opportunity for fresh research or reflection. They agreed to deliver four essays per week, that is, two apiece, at roughly three-day intervals, leaving little time for revision. The essays then appeared in four of the five New York newspapers. The constantly looming deadlines meant that the authors had to draw on information, ideas, and citations already stored in their minds or notes. Luckily, they had both been in training for several years. Madison explained to Jefferson, Though the publication is carried on in concert, the writers are not mutually answerable for all the ideas of each other, there being seldom time for even a perusal of the pieces by any but the writer before they are wanted at the press, and sometimes hardly by the writer himself. So excruciating was the schedule, Madison said, that often, whilst the printer was putting into type parts of a number, the following parts were under the pen and to be furnished in time for the press. Very often, Hamilton and Madison first read each other's contributions in print. Madison was aided by his convention notes and crib sheets from his preparatory reading. Without these scholarly crutches, he confessed, the performance must have borne a very different aspect. For Hamilton, it was a period of madcap activity. He was stuck with his law practice and had to squeeze the essays into breaks in his schedule, as if they were a minor sideline. Robert Troop noted of Hamilton's haste in writing The Federalist, All the numbers written by Hamilton were composed under the greatest possible pressure of business, for he always had a vast deal of law business to engage his attention. Troop remembered seeing Samuel Loudon in Hamilton's study, waiting to take numbers of the Federalist as they came fresh from his pen, in order to publish them in the next paper. During one prodigious burst after Madison returned to Virginia, Hamilton churned out twenty-one straight essays in a two-month period. On two occasions, he published five essays in a single week, and published six in one spectacular week when writing on taxation. Hamilton's mind always worked with preternatural speed. His collected papers are so stupefying in length that it is hard to believe that one man created them in fewer than five decades. 
Words were his chief weapons, and his account books are crammed with purchases for thousands of quills, parchments, penknives, slate pencils, reams of fool's cap, and wax. His papers show that, Mozart-like, he could transpose complex thoughts onto paper with few revisions. At other times, he tinkered with the prose, but generally did not alter the logical progression of his thought. He wrote with the speed of a beautifully organized mind that digested ideas thoroughly, slotted them into appropriate pigeonholes, then regurgitated them at will. To understand Hamilton's productivity, it is important to note that virtually all of his important work was journalism, prompted by topical issues and written in the midst of controversy. He never wrote as a solitary philosopher for the ages. His friend Nathaniel Pendleton remarked, his eloquence seemed to require opposition to give it its full force. But his topical writing has endured because he plumbed the timeless principles behind contemporary events. Whether in legal briefs or sustained polemics, he wanted to convince people through appeals to their reason. He had an incomparable capacity for work and a metabolism that thrived on conflict. His stupendous output came from the interplay of superhuman stamina and intellect and a fair degree of repetition. Hamilton developed ingenious ways to wring words from himself. One method was to walk the floor as he formed sentences in his head. William Sullivan left an excellent vignette of Hamilton's intense method of composition. One who knew his habits of study said of him that when he had a serious object to accomplish, his practice was to reflect on it previously. And when he had gone through this labor, he retired to sleep, without regard to the hour of the night, and having slept six or seven hours, he rose, and having taken strong coffee, seated himself at his table, where he would remain six, seven, or eight hours, and the product of his rapid pen required little correction for the press. Since Hamilton's abiding literary sin was prolixity, the time and length constraints imposed by the Federalist may have given a salutary concision to his writing. For all his charisma, Alexander Hamilton was essentially an intellectual loner who took perverse pride in standing against the crowd. All the more remarkable that his greatest literary triumph came in close collaboration with Madison and Jay. After leaving the convention in Philadelphia, Madison had returned to his lodgings at 19 Maiden Lane in Manhattan, where he resided with other Virginia delegates to the now almost moribund Confederation Congress. Later anointed the father of the Constitution, Madison had many reservations about the document, especially the equal representation of states in the Senate, and was content at first to let others take up the cudgels in its defense. He also thought it proper that others should assess the convention's work. But by late October he was so upset by the grotesque distortions of the Constitution and the furor whipped up by the New York press that he agreed to work with Hamilton on the Federalist. Americans often wonder how this moment could have spawned such extraordinary men as Hamilton and Madison. Part of the answer is that the revolution produced an insatiable need for thinkers who could generate ideas and wordsmiths who could lucidly expound them. The immediate utility of ideas was an incalculable tonic for the founding generation. The fate of the democratic experiment depended upon political intellectuals who might have been marginalized at other periods. At this crossroads, Hamilton and Madison must have seemed an odd pair in the New York streets. 
Hamilton, 32, the peacock, wearing bright colors and chattering gaily, and Madison, 36, the crow in habitual black with a quiet, more reflective manner. When French journalist J.P. Brissot de Warville met them that year, it was the older Madison who resembled a pallid young scholar, while Hamilton seemed older and more worldly. This Republican seems to be no more than thirty-three years old, the Frenchman wrote of Madison. When I saw him, he looked tired, perhaps as a result of the immense labor to which he had devoted himself recently. His expression was that of a stern censor, his conversation disclosed a man of learning, and his countenance was that of a person conscious of his talents and of his duties. Of Hamilton. Mr. Hamilton is Mr. Madison's worthy rival as well as his collaborator. He looks thirty-eight or forty years old, is not tall, and has a resolute, frank, soldierly appearance. He has distinguished himself by his eloquence and by the soundness of his reasoning. Hamilton and Madison came to symbolize opposite ends of the political spectrum. At the time of the Federalist essays, however, they were so close in style and outlook that scholars find it hard to sort out their separate contributions. In general, Madison's style was dense and professorial, Hamilton's more graceful and flowing, yet they had a similar flair for startling epigrams and piercing insights. At this stage, Madison often sounded Hamiltonian and vice versa. Later identified as a strict constructionist of the Constitution, Madison set forth the doctrine of implied powers that Hamilton later used to expand the powers of the federal government. It was Madison who wrote in Federalist No. 44, No axiom is more clearly established in law or in reason than that wherever the end is required, the means are authorized. At this juncture, they could make common cause on the need to fortify the federal government and curb rampant state abuses. Both Hamilton and Madison were rational men who assumed that people often acted irrationally because of ambition and avarice. Madison wrote, If men were angels, no government would be necessary. The two shared a grim vision of the human condition, even if Hamilton's had the blacker tinge. They both wanted to erect barriers against irrational popular impulses and tyrannical minorities and majorities. To this end, they thought that public opinion should be distilled by skeptical, sober-minded representatives. Despite Hamilton's reputation as the elitist, the starting point of Madison's most famous essay, Federalist No. 10, is that people possess different natural endowments, leading to an unequal distribution of property and conflicts of classes and interests. In a big, heterogeneous country, Madison argued, these conflicting interests would neutralize one another, checking abuses of power. Let ambition counteract ambition, he wrote in Federalist No. 51. If Madison displays a broader knowledge of theory and history in the Federalist, Hamilton betrays wider knowledge of the world. With his itinerant background, he brought commercial, military, and political expertise to bear. This was especially true in discussions of political economy, in which he outshone Madison. Madison showed more interest in constitutional curbs against tyrannical encroachments, whereas Hamilton lauded spurs to action. In sections of the Federalist dealing with the executive and judicial branches, Hamilton pressed his case for vigor and energy in government, a hobby horse he was derived for the rest of his career. At the same time, he was always careful to reconcile the need for order with the thirst for liberty. 
Bernard Balin has written that the Constitution, in creating a strong central government, the Federalist argued, did not betray the Revolution, with its radical hopes for greater political freedom than had been known before. Quite the contrary, it fulfilled those radical aspirations by creating the power necessary to guarantee both the nation's survival and the preservation of the people and the state's rights. Let us pause to survey the Federalist with special attention to Hamilton's contributions, for these essays testify to the extraordinary breadth of his thinking. As author of the opening salvo, Hamilton began with a flourish, addressing the series to the people of the state of New York. After an unequivocal experience of the inefficacy of the subsisting federal government, you are called upon to deliberate on a new constitution for the United States of America. The main question was whether good governments could be created from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. One can almost see Hamilton declaiming as he announced that the outcome of the ratifying conventions would determine the fate of an empire, and that rejection would be a general misfortune of mankind. Hamilton questioned the motives of the Constitution's opponents and censured the two types who had populated his political nightmares. State politicians, read George Clinton, who feared an erosion of their power, and demagogues who fed off popular confusion while proclaiming popular rights. Jefferson later took this starring role. Hamilton warned that a dangerous ambition more often lurks behind the specious mask of zeal for the rights of the people— than under the forbidding appearance of zeal for the firmness and efficiency of government. Having set the stage, Hamilton outlined the general plan of the future essays, but did not specify their number. In the next four essays, John Jay showed how weak and vulnerable the Confederation had been in foreign affairs. Then Hamilton devoted four essays to the pernicious domestic consequences that would ensue if the Articles of Confederation endured and states continued to bicker with one another. With his penchant for disaster scenarios, Hamilton cited dire precedents from ancient Greece to Shays Rebellion. In Federalist No. 6, he mocked as wishful thinking the notion that democratic republics would necessarily be peaceful. Are not popular assemblies frequently subject to the impulses of rage, resentment, jealousy, avarice, and of other irregular and violent propensities? This prophet of global trade also dismissed the pipe dream that commerce invariably unites nations. Has commerce hitherto done anything more than change the objects of war? Is not the love of wealth as domineering and enterprising a passion as that of power or glory? Hamilton disputed that America would be an Eden governed by a special providence. Is it not time to awake from the deceitful dream of a golden age and to adopt as a practical maxim for the direction of our political conduct that we, as well as the other inhabitants of the globe, are yet remote from the happy empire of perfect wisdom and perfect virtue? Starting with Federalist Number 7, Hamilton reviewed the numberless things that states could squabble about without a strong union. The lack of fortifications and standing armies would only exacerbate wars among the states, tempting bigger states to behave in predatory fashion toward smaller ones. The resulting chaos would lead to the very despotic militarism that anti-federalists feared, for in such a situation the people are brought to consider the soldiery not only as their protectors, but as their superiors. 
While conceding that republics had produced disorders in the past, Hamilton noted that progress in the science of politics had fostered principles that would prevent most abuses. The division of powers among departments, legislative checks and balances, an independent judiciary, and representation by elected legislators. When Jay fell ill, Madison brilliantly leaped into the void with his celebrated Federalist No. 10, the most influential of all the essays, in which he took issue with Montesquieu's theory that democracy could survive only in small states. Standing this argument on its head, Madison showed that in a more extensive republic, interest groups would counterbalance one another and avert tyrannical majorities. In Federalist Numbers 11 through 13, Hamilton displayed his practical, administrative bent as he explained the advantages of the new union for commerce, as well as government revenues and expenses. He revealed America's commercial destiny as he prophesied that envious European states would try to clip the wings by which we might soar to a dangerous greatness. With a powerful union, America would strike better commercial bargains and create a respectable navy. He offered an expansive view of prosperous American merchants, farmers, artisans, and manufacturers, all working together. In a sudden flash of economic foresight, he anticipated 20th century monetary theory. The ability of a country to pay taxes must always be proportioned in a great degree to the quantity of money in circulation and to the celerity, what economists now call velocity, with which it circulates. Blessed with a potent union, the government would collect customs duties with greater efficiency, since it would not have to stop contraband among the states and need only patrol the Atlantic seaboard. Americans would likewise save money by having a single country rather than the separate confederacies that might stem from disunion. All this was a further rebuttal to Montesquieu's view that large republics could never survive. In Federalist Numbers 15 through 22, Hamilton and then Madison skewered the anarchic state of the Confederation. Pride and honor always loomed large in Hamilton's value system, both personal and political, and he mourned the national degradation and loss of dignity after the Revolution. The United States had become a pariah country, sneered at by foreign states. We have neither troops nor treasury nor government. Land and property values had plummeted, money had grown scarce, public credit had been destroyed, all because the central government lacked power, and it lacked that power because it had to rely for revenue upon the states, who competed to provide the least money to it. Only if the federal government could deal directly with its citizens and not fear obstruction from the states could it be a true government. In number 17, Hamilton disagreed that national officials would be able to impose their wills on the states. State governments would always have superior claims on people's affections, and abuses of power would therefore more likely occur on the local level. Here, Hamilton had planned a tour d'horizon of ancient and modern confederacies, showing how they tended to fall apart. When he learned that Madison had already undertaken this work, Hamilton handed him his notes for Federalist Numbers 18 through 20. The resulting somewhat pedantic essays by Madison ended on a defensive note. I make no apology for having dwelt so long on the contemplation of these federal precedents. Experience is the oracle of truth, and where its responses are unequivocal, they ought to be conclusive and sacred. 
To round out his searching critique of the Articles of Confederation, Hamilton devoted two more essays to the central government's impotence in enforcing the law. Recalling Shays' rebellion, he inquired, who can determine what might have been the issue of Massachusetts' late convulsions if the malcontents had been headed by a Caesar or a Cromwell? This and numerous other pejorative references to Caesar belie Jefferson's canard that Hamilton revered the Roman dictator. He endorsed the need for federal regulation of commerce and allayed fears that the central government would levy oppressive customs fees. If duties are too high, they lessen the consumption. The collection is eluded and the product to the treasury is not so great as when they are confined within proper and moderate bounds. He also decried the Confederation's lack of a federal judiciary. Laws are a dead letter without courts to expound and define their true meaning and operation. In typically categorical fashion, Hamilton ended by dismissing the Articles of Confederation as an abomination, one of the most execrable forms of government that human infatuation ever contrived. In the next fourteen numbers, twenty-three through thirty-six, Hamilton undertook a point-by-point -point defense of the Constitution, making the case that an energetic government would require peacetime armies and taxation, both associated with British rule and hence anathema to radical populists. The new country would be so large, he contended, that only a mighty central government could govern it. To gain the requisite strength, that government would need the option of raising armies instead of relying on the much romanticized state militias. War, like most other things, is a science to be acquired and perfected by diligence, by perseverance, by time, and by practice. While others maintained that a wide ocean insulated America from European threats, Hamilton saw a country enmeshed in a shrinking world. The improvements in the art of navigation have rendered distant nations in a great measure neighbors. Economic and military strength went hand in hand. If we mean to be a commercial people, we must endeavor as soon as possible to have a navy. As to fears that the federal government would amass excessive power, Hamilton again reassured readers that the general government will at all times stand ready to check the usurpations of the state governments, and these will have the same disposition towards the general government. Similarly, state militias would check potential abuses of any national army, safeguarding the balance of power between the federal and state governments. Approaching the naughty subject of revenues in number 30, Hamilton described the power of taxation as an indispensable ingredient in every constitution. Without it, the Confederation government has gradually dwindled into a state of decay, approaching nearly to annihilation. Not only would taxes underwrite operating expenses, but they would enable the country to pay off its debt, restore its credit, and raise large loans in wartime. From his reading of history, Hamilton concluded a few essays later that war was an inescapable fact of life. The fiery and destructive passions of war reign in the human breast with much more powerful sway than the mild and beneficent sentiments of peace. Broaching the vital doctrine of implied powers in Numbers 30 through 34, Hamilton asserted that in politics the means ought to be proportioned to the end. There ought to be no limitation of a power destined to effect a purpose. He wanted the Constitution to be a flexible document. There ought to be a capacity to provide for future contingencies. 
Making another critical distinction, Hamilton denied that the federal government would retain an exclusive taxing power. States would have concurrent power to tax their citizens because the Constitution aims only at a partial union or consolidation. The sole exception would be the federal monopoly of customs duties, then the principal source of revenue and the leading source of existing tensions and inequities among the states. At moments, it seems clear that while scribbling the Federalist, Hamilton was daydreaming about becoming Treasury Secretary. In number thirty-five, he wrote. There is no part of the administration of government that requires extensive information and a thorough knowledge of the principles of political economy so much as the business of taxation. In the following essay, he inserted a statement with a patently autobiographical ring. There are strong minds in every walk of life that will rise superior to the disadvantages of situation and will command the tribute due to their merit, not only from the classes to which they particularly belong. But from the society in general, the door ought to be equally open to all. At the same time, Hamilton thought that a Congress composed mostly of landowners, merchants, and professionals could legislate effectively for the masses. On January eleventh, seventeen eighty-eight, Madison began to cover the general structure of the new union in a string of twenty essays, starting with number thirty-seven. Hamilton, now back in Albany, may have pitched in on the final ten. Until this point, Hamilton had scarcely said anything in the Federalist that he had not said repeatedly since his earliest wartime letters or in his Continentalist essays. Only as he touched upon such topics as elections in the later essays did he diverge from his own preferred beliefs, and even then he surrounded new positions with old arguments. Those who criticize Hamilton for having engaged in a propaganda exercise in the Federalist must reckon with the tremendous continuity that connects the Federalist essays to both his earlier and later writings. As Madison reviewed the compound character of the Federalist system in Number Thirty Seven, subtle but fateful differences with Hamilton began to emerge, differences that were to be enlarged over time. In number forty-one, Madison expressed reservations about standing armies and the onerous taxes needed to sustain them, and was cynical about the corruption of the British Parliament. In other places, however, he sounded like even more of a raging Anglophile than Hamilton. Madison faulted the Articles of Confederation for their vague language and savored the Constitution's precision, which he hoped would circumscribe federal powers. Hamilton, in contrast. Capitalized on what he saw as the document's general and elastic language to expand government power. By numbers fifty-nine through sixty-one, Hamilton, returned to New York from Albany, took up the subject of congressional elections and regulations. Though identified with northern mercantile interests, Hamilton emphasized that in an agricultural society, the cultivators of land must, upon the whole, preponderate in the government. In Federalist Number Sixty, he offered a vision of a House of Representatives dominated by landholders, but also marked by diversity. Hamilton was careful to stress that for the foreseeable future, manufacturing would play an auxiliary role in a predominantly agricultural society. The five essays, sixty-two through sixty-six, on the Senate embody the Federalists' most collaborative section, with Madison handling the first two, Jay reappearing to take number sixty-four, and Hamilton winding up the two concluding numbers. 
In number 62, Madison stated frankly that the balance struck between proportional representation in the House and equal representation in the Senate had come from political compromise, not ideal theory. In the next essay, he defended the small, elite Senate against charges that it would grow into a tyrannical aristocracy, and sounded Hamiltonian when he stated that liberty may be endangered by the abuses of liberty as well as by the abuses of power. The former rather than the latter is apparently most to be apprehended by the United States. With this parting shot, Madison went back to Virginia in March to defend the Constitution in his home state. Once Jay wrote number 64 on the treaty powers of the Senate, Hamilton single-handedly penned the next 21 essays, 65 through 85, handling parts of the Senate as well as the entire commentary on the executive and judicial branches. In his superb account of Senate impeachment powers in number 65, Hamilton visualized with exceptional prescience the problems that would occur when passions inflamed the country and partisanship split the Senate over an accused federal official. Since the impeached president or federal judge would remain liable to prosecution if removed from office, Hamilton showed the Constitution's wisdom in having the chief justice alone preside over the trial instead of the entire Supreme Court. The Senate would benefit from the chief justice's judicial knowledge while keeping the high court free for any future decisions related to the case. Acknowledging imperfections in the impeachment process, Hamilton stressed that the Constitution had produced the best compromise available. If mankind were to resolve to agree in no institution of government until every part of it had been adjusted to the most exact standard of perfection, society would soon become a general scene of anarchy and the world a desert. In turning to the executive branch, numbers 67 through 77, Hamilton wrote about the part of government in which he had the keenest interest and which he considered the engine of the entire machinery. As he phrased it in number 70, energy in the executive is a leading character in the definition of good government. He mocked exaggerated fears of the powers bestowed on the president and said that in some respects he would have fewer powers than New York's governor. Hamilton drew freely on statements he made at the Constitutional Convention to distinguish his elective monarch from a king. The British king, he pointed out, was hereditary, could not be removed by impeachment, had an absolute veto over the laws of both houses, could dissolve parliament, declare war, make treaties, confer titles of nobility, and bestow church offices. It clearly exasperated Hamilton that critics were drawing facile comparisons between the American president and the British king. In his essays on the need for executive branch vigor, Hamilton continually invoked the king of England as an example of what should be avoided, especially the monarch's lack of accountability. Every president ought to be personally responsible for his behavior in office. In number 71, Hamilton presented his theory of presidents as leaders who should act for the popular good, even if the people were sometimes deluded about their interests. Hamilton made the argument that the separate branches of government were not intended only to curb one another, but to afford independence to one another. To what purpose separate the executive or the judiciary from the legislative if both the executive and the judiciary are so constituted as to be at the absolute devotion of the legislative? 
Deviating from his convention speech, Hamilton now touted the merits of a four-year term for the president, who could run for additional terms. This would give occupants of the office an incentive to perform well and secure to the government the advantage of permanency in a wise system of administration. In reviewing presidential powers, 73 through 77, Hamilton praised the presidential veto as a way to contain the legislature and offset popular fads. Where populists worried that the executive branch might overwhelm the legislature, Hamilton had a contrary fear of excessive legislative power. In number 74, he made a moving appeal for the presidential power to issue pardons. Humanity and good policy conspire to dictate that the benign prerogative for pardoning should be as little as possible fettered or embarrassed. The criminal code of every country partakes so much of necessary severity that without an easy access to exceptions in favor of unfortunate guilt, justice would wear a countenance too sanguinary and cruel. In this passage, he sounded reminiscent of the young Colonel Hamilton who pleaded with General Washington to show mercy for Major John André. Notwithstanding his preference for a strong president, Hamilton applauded many checks on presidential power. To protect the country from a president corrupted by foreign ministries, Hamilton approved the provision requiring presidents to obtain two-thirds approval of the Senate to enact treaties. In a similar vein, he approved the presidential power to appoint ambassadors and Supreme Court judges, subject to Senate confirmation, which would check a spirit of favoritism in the president. In the Federalist Papers, Hamilton was as quick to applaud checks on powers as those powers themselves, as he continued his lifelong effort to balance freedom and order. In the final analysis, he thought that the federal government, not the states, would be the best guarantee of individual liberty. In the last eight essays of the Federalist, 78 through 85, written for the conclusion of the second bound volume, Hamilton dedicated the first six to the judiciary. Throughout his career, he showed special solicitude for an independent judiciary, which he thought the most important guardian of minority rights, but also the weakest of the three branches of government. It commands neither the press nor the sword. It has scarcely any patronage. He was especially intent that the federal judiciary check any legislative abuses. In number 78, Hamilton introduced an essential concept, never made explicit in the Constitution, that the Supreme Court should be able to review and overturn legislation as unconstitutional. At Philadelphia, delegates had concentrated on the question of state versus federal courts, not whether courts could invalidate legislation. Here, Hamilton bluntly affirmed that no legislative act contrary to the Constitution can be valid, laying the intellectual groundwork for the doctrine of judicial review later promulgated by Supreme Court Justice John Marshall. When Hamilton wrote these words, state judges had taken only the first tentative steps in nullifying laws passed by their assemblies. Hamilton revered great judges and in the next essay pondered how the most highly qualified people could be recruited and retained by the courts. He argued for adequate salaries and against both age limits and the power to remove judges, except by impeachment. He then outlined the scope of the court's jurisdiction and the separate bailiwicks of the Supreme Court and the appellate courts. In number 82, Hamilton tackled the vexed issue of how powers would be divided between state and federal courts, 
insisting that, in the last analysis, judicial power must rest with the federal courts. Though a believer in trial by jury, he dissented from the fanciful idea that juries were universally applicable in civil as well as criminal cases. He was particularly alarmed at the prospect that juries would sit in cases involving foreign relations, where their ignorance of the law of nations might afford occasions of reprisal and war from the countries affected. Many foes of the Constitution were demanding a Bill of Rights as a precondition for ratification. In number 84, Hamilton said this would be superfluous and even potentially hazardous. For why declare that things shall not be done which there is no power to do? Why, for instance, should it be said that the liberty of the press shall not be restrained when no power is given by which restrictions may be imposed? He also thought the Constitution had already guaranteed many rights ranging from habeas corpus to trial by jury. Where Hamilton often seems oracular in The Federalist, he was frightfully wide of the mark when it came to a Bill of Rights, one of his real failures of vision. We should note that in Federalist No. 84, he supported with enthusiasm the Constitution's ban on titles of nobility. This may truly be denominated the cornerstone of Republican government, for so long as they are excluded, there can never be serious danger that the government will be any other than that of the people. In the final essay, number 85, Hamilton reminded readers that the Constitution was not a perfect document, and cited Hume that only time and experience could guide political enterprises to completion. It would be folly to imagine that the framers could attain instant perfection. The final lines of the Federalist throbbed with high hopes, but were also tinged with darkness. On a promising note, Hamilton said, A nation without a national government is, in my view, an awful spectacle. The establishment of a constitution in a time of profound peace by the voluntary consent of a whole people is a prodigy, to the completion of which I look forward with trembling anxiety. If Hamilton had ended on this uplifting note, he would not have been Hamilton. So he closed instead with the ominous warning that I know that powerful individuals in this and in other states are enemies to a general national government in every possible shape. Thus ended the most persuasive defense of the Constitution ever written. By the year 2000, it had been quoted no fewer than 291 times in Supreme Court opinions, with the frequency of citations rising with the years. As the excruciating demands of the Federalists rendered Hamilton's life even more sedentary than usual, he was a prisoner of his desk. He had no relief from his labors or time for diversion. Re-elected to Congress by the New York legislature on January 22, 1788, he did not even have a chance to present his credentials until February 25th. That spring, swept up in a political whirlwind, he apologized to Governor Morris for having been incommunicado, saying, The truth is that I have been so overwhelmed in avocations of one kind or another that I have scarcely had a moment to spare to a friend. Amid his manifold labors, Hamilton kept a careful eye on the pregnant Eliza, who gave birth to their fourth child, James Alexander, on April 14th. Eliza spent the summer with her family in Albany, attended by an unexpected visitor, Anne Venton Mitchell. The Federalist is so renowned as the foremost exposition of the Constitution that it is easy to forget its original aim. 
Ratification in Hamilton's Home State. Printed in only a dozen papers outside of New York, its larger influence was spotty. In places where it did appear, the verbal avalanche of Hamilton, Madison, and Jay overwhelmed hapless readers. In mid-December, one embattled anti-federalist in Philadelphia bewailed the never-ending onslaught of words. Publius has already written twenty-six numbers, as much as would jade the brains of any poor sinner, so that in decency he should now rest on his arms and let the people draw their breath for a little. Another anti-federalist complained that Publius had endeavored to force conviction by a torrent of misplaced words. Supporters, however, had a bottomless appetite for the essays, and the author's names began to leak out. When Edward Carrington of Virginia sent the first bound volume to Jefferson in Paris, he added with suspiciously precise guesswork, They are written, it is supposed, by Messrs. Madison, Jay, and Hamilton. The Philadelphia Convention had decided that the Constitution would take effect once it was ratified by nine state conventions. Hamilton had given the rationale for state conventions in Federalist No. 22. The fabric of American empire ought to rest on the solid basis of the consent of the people. Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey approved the document in December 1787, Georgia and Connecticut in January, and Massachusetts by a slim majority in early February. The Federalist produced its greatest impact in the later stages of the ratification battle, especially after the first bound volume appeared on March 22nd. When New York selected convention delegates that April, Hamilton was among them. James Kent recalled that at one nomination meeting, the volumes were there circulated to the best of our judgments. Colonel Hamilton was very soon and very generally understood to be the sole or principal author. Madison sent hundreds of copies to Virginia delegates, including John Marshall. The Federalists' influence was to be especially critical in New York and Virginia, two large states indispensable to the Union's long-term viability. The state conventions were cunningly staggered so that a bandwagon effect might be created in favor of approval. This made the later gatherings scenes of high drama, as the tally of ratifying states approached the magic number nine. Though the Federalist was originally intended to sway delegate selection in New York, it failed in that intent. When the results were tabulated, the outlook looked pretty ghastly for Hamilton and the Federalists. They had attained a mere 19 delegates in New York City and environs versus 46 for an upstate anti-Federalist slate headed by Governor Clinton. For all the intellectual firepower marshaled in the Federalist, New York had a highly intelligent, well-oiled opposition to the Constitution. By late May, Maryland and South Carolina had given their blessings to the Constitution, bringing the total of ratifying states to eight, just one shy of the number needed. But victory in some of the remaining states seemed questionable. North Carolina and Rhode Island both scorned the scheme, while New Hampshire vacillated so the battle for the Constitution seemed to boil down to the contests in Virginia and New York, whose conventions began in June. Fortunately for supporters, the second volume of The Federalist was published on May 28th and contained the eight new essays by Hamilton. These bonus essays appeared in the newspapers between June 14th and August 16th, with a new one cropping up every few days as the New York delegates began to deliberate. 
Hamilton and Madison vowed to stay in touch as their respective conventions progressed. Because Virginia's started two weeks earlier, Hamilton had instructed Madison to relay to him immediately any favorable news, since passage in Virginia might prod reluctant New Yorkers to follow suit. It will be of vast importance that an exact communication should be kept up between us at that period, Hamilton told Madison. And the moment any decisive question is taken, if favorable, I request you to dispatch and express to me with pointed orders to make all possible diligence by changing horses, etc. In the same anxious tone, Hamilton arranged for swift riders to race from New Hampshire to New York with any encouraging news. In both cases, Hamilton promised to defray the expenses. For all the high-toned language of the Federalist, Hamilton knew that the New York Convention would come down to bare-knuckled politics. A prominent anti-Federalist had already warned him that rather than to adopt the Constitution, I would risk a government of Jew, Turk, or infidel. Hamilton knew that such zealotry would not be amenable to persuasion, especially with George Clinton at the delegation's head. As Clinton is truly the leader of his party and inflexibly obstinate, I count little on overcoming opposition by reason, Hamilton confided to Madison. Our only chances will be the previous ratification by nine states, which may shake the firmness of his followers. Though eight states had already ratified, the final leg of the journey was anything but smooth. The plot thickens fast, George Washington told the Marquis de Lafayette in late May. A few short weeks will determine the political fate of America. As Hamilton gloomily surveyed the scene, he feared that New York might stall for another year before deciding whether to join the Union, and he reiterated to Madison his perpetual fears of an eventual disunion and civil war. Unlike upstate farmers, New York City merchants heartily supported the Constitution and gave a festive send-off to Federalist delegates when they departed for the Poughkeepsie Convention on June 14th. Crowds waved and thirteen cannon roared at the battery as a delegation led by Mayor James DeWayne embarked on a Hudson River sloop for the 75-mile journey upriver. This illustrious group included Hamilton, Jay, and Robert R. Livingston, and it made up in intelligence what it lacked in numbers. As the one person in Poughkeepsie who had signed the Constitution, Hamilton was to enjoy special prestige, but he knew it would be a tough, protracted struggle against George Clinton's fearsome political machine. The convention was held at the Poughkeepsie Courthouse, a two-story building with a cupola and gruesome dungeons below for prisoners. Governor Clinton was elected as the chairman. If dignified in mean, he was scarcely a neutral arbiter. In Federalist No. 77, Hamilton had already blasted him for running a despicable and dangerous system of personal influence. Clinton feared that Hamilton wanted to obliterate the states, but he was confident he had sufficient votes to squash the Constitution in New York or encumber it with so many conditions as to make its acceptance impossible. At the outset, Hamilton slipped a technical provision into the convention rules that was a tactical bonanza for the Federalists. The Constitution had to be debated clause by clause before a general vote could be taken. It was a masterly stroke. 
Nobody could vie with Hamilton in close textual analysis, and this step-by-step -step approach would stall the proceedings, increasing the likelihood that riders from Virginia or New Hampshire would rush in with news that their states had ratified and force New York to follow suit. Governor Clinton gathered several able anti-federalist speakers, of whom the most adroit was Melanchthon Smith, who had a dry, plain-spoken manner and an understated wit. He was a deceptively good debater who knew how to lure opponents into logical traps from which they found it hard to escape. Smith saw Hamilton as the cat's paw of an aristocratic clique and told the assembly that he thanked his God that he was a plebeian. He had tremendous respect for Hamilton's abilities, however, even if he found him wordy and discursive. Hamilton is the champion, he admitted to a friend. He speaks frequently, very long, and very vehemently. He has, like Publius, much to say not very applicable to the subject. Hamilton's performance at the convention was an 